Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. Donald Trump is now the President of the United States of America. We have full coverage of the inauguration and what it means for Canada. To kick off the show, we're joined by Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, who is in Washington as a part of Canada's official delegation. Then we're joined by several experts who weigh in on the impact of this inauguration. And later, we hear from McLean's writer Scott Gilmore, who is on the ground speaking with people in the crowd for this historic event. Finally, from Trump to O'Leary, it seems reality TV businessmen are dominating the leadership talk in North America. Kevin O'Leary made it official this week, launching his campaign for the federal conservative leadership race. O'Leary joins us on the show to discuss his chances, jobs, and of course, Donald Trump. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States. It was that historic swearing of the oath of office in front of a crowd of hundreds of thousands that officially made Donald Trump the 45th president of the U.S. The ceremony came with all the pomp and circumstance you'd expect as this controversial businessman and reality TV star formally took over as the so-called leader of the free world. In his first speech as president, Donald Trump decided to double down on a lot of the protectionist rhetoric that appealed to so many Americans during the election campaign. We are transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the people. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issued a statement following the ceremony congratulating Trump, but also emphasizing Canada's close relationship with the U.S. and our strong ties on trade and defense. For the inauguration ceremony, Trudeau also sent a delegation down to Washington to push Canada's interests with U.S. lawmakers at a big bash held at the Canadian Embassy. One of the people there, Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan, who joins me now by phone to discuss his reaction to Trump's speech and what it means for Canada. No, thank you for having me. 
what did you think of Donald Trump's inauguration speech? I mean, this is the first time uh, uh, President Trump had an opportunity to speak with uh, Americans as uh, president, and he's laying out um, his vision um, on things, and um, and it just goes to show the importance of, for us to be uh, to be able to um, show Americans, and, and so they can fully appreciate that um, how much uh, our trade are, uh, and their jobs, and including our uh, jobs, are dependent on a very strong trade relationship between between our two nations. Donald Trump said flat out that uh, he wants to do a buy American, hire American policy. He criticized countries that he claims are stealing American jobs and businesses. Is that concerning to you that that's the message that he's sending in this speech? Uh, keep in mind, I mean, um, I, I'm, I think President Trump is talking to many nations uh, around the world, uh, but when it comes to uh, the U.S. and Canada relationship and the uniqueness um, of that, whether it's from defense, uh, from the security side of things, from uh, our policing relationship, and, and especially on, on trade, that we have a very unique relationship there and that uh, jobs on both sides of the border are uh, dependent on a very strong uh, trade uh, relationships and, uh, and I think it's uh, one that uh, the U.S. administration, the um, uh, one will come to a, a further appreciate 35 states uh, um, strongly depend on um, um, jobs because of uh, the trade that, that that we have billions of dollars of trade is, um, occurs every every single day between our two nations uh, so do you think he wasn't talking about Canada when he made all those comments I mean I can't speculate uh, based on uh, from from his speech but I can I mean based on uh, my knowledge base of the uh, of our uh, you know great relationship on on, on trade uh, this is something that uh, we as, as Canadians and Canadian government will be uh, demonstrating uh, to the new administration of what's required and we already have a great relationship between uh, the various uh, uh, states as, uh, as, as, as well and um, as we move forward we'll continue to build that unique relationship that has gone through you know many different administrations and including uh, different Canadian governments as well. Just telling the Americans that uh, hey, we're we're a great trading partner. Uh, don't screw this up. Might not be good enough in dealing with Trump. What else is the Trudeau government uh, doing to make sure uh, that our interests are protected? The, it's important, always important to look at improving uh, our trade relationship and um, our work as a government with uh, the administration, not just strictly based on uh, telling people um, about this, but it's actually demonstrating by the, by the facts, by, by uh, going state by state to be able to demonstrate by the metric and something that uh, I think the administration would uh, appreciate, especially given President Trump's uh, business background. And that's how we're going to be demonstra- demonstrating that and the importance of uh, uh, American jobs. Jobs um, are it, um, it is uh, uh, very strongly dependent on a good trade relationship uh, with Canada, and in fact, we'd like to be able to improve that uh, even further. And we'll have further discussions on looking at improving uh, ways and. Um, uh, Minister Freeland uh, will be uh, working aggressively, like she has always done, and I will continue to work on um, the, you know, the valuable uh, defense relationship uh, that our two nations have. And as Minister Goodill, we'll be working on the, the uh, security relationship, uh, which is very important uh, to both Canada and the U.S. and our North American uh, um, uh, security relationship. I, I know I've talked a lot about trade so far in this speech because it is a big economic concern, uh, but as you just mentioned, uh, you are the defense minister. 
Twitter, <laughs> and that did pop up in the inaugural speech of Donald Trump. He chided countries uh, for not doing enough in terms of the military. What do you take from Trump's words uh, about defense? Uh, I mean, it's Canada and the U.S. Uh, together, actually, uh, together we defend uh, other nations. We have a uh, one of the most unique rel- uh, defense relationships uh, in the world, and especially through NORAD. It's a binational uh, command. We are together uh, on overseas operations. We do uh, we do a lot of collaborative work on on the intelligence side of things, and we too, um, by the way, had it showed. Uh, our concerns about other nations are not stepping out. If you recall, when in Afghanistan, when Canadians were uh, holding the most important areas in Afghanistan uh, of Kandahar, and where we were asking other nations to step up, so I can understand uh, some of the you know some of the concerns that they have. And but uh, one thing that Canada-U.S. Uh, defense relationship is has been extremely um, solid, and we work extremely collaboratively. And I look forward to um, the new Secretary uh, of Defense. I know there's a certain process that still has to go into place, but um, General Mattis has a, is an extremely well-respected um, uh, officer with tremendous uh, experience uh, who, uh, in a way, uh, looks at the relationship, I think, in the same way as I do. I've always stated, my, when I look at our defense relationship, it's about how we were together on the battlefield, whether it was back in uh, World War I, uh, World War II, uh, in Korea, uh, and in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, Canadians probably don't know, or even Americans don't know, that uh, two of our units has the presidential citation on uh, the PCLI uh, for their um, uh, the, uh, the work that they did in uh, Korea, and JTF2 uh, has a presidential uh, citation as, as well. And we there's so many aspects, and I can go through a extreme laundry list of it, and I can assure you and give uh, both Canadians and the U.S. confidence in uh, how important our defense relationship is and how much we value it. And I, on all, I can also, I think, put a hand on to say how much the U.S. values it, because when uh, during my third deployment, I was personally seconded and requested to deploy with the Americans at that, that time. And that's that level of relationship that we have, that we can even individually request people by name because they bring a certain uh, uh, value uh, to a mission and, and, and many of our folks uh, in our military as, as well. With the U.S. possibly changing some of its military priorities uh, and and. Donald Trump saying just recently that he thinks NATO is obsolete. Will Canada be investing more in the military uh, or investing in the size of our military? Well, we stated uh, right from the beginning that how, how, our, how much our government is committed to, uh, to the military. Um, we've demonstrated this by uh, increasing our um, operational support uh, to, into Iraq to, uh, to fight Daesh, and which we have done in a significant way, which is having an impact on the ground um, uh, right now. Uh, we've inc- and we've we as a government support our multilateral um, uh, engagements and the, which includes NATO and the reason why we as a nation are have um, always uh, stepped up stepped up alongside uh, the the, uh, the U.S. Are there efficiencies to be created? Of course, and we'll continue um, uh, to do that. But we will always work together with uh, with our most important ally on issues and uh, and uh, moving 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 forward. There is a significant threat uh, that we see in in Europe, and that's why we will always continue to support um, uh, Ukraine as well and be a strong partner with them. So in terms of Canada's priorities with NATO, uh, will you be changing any of them, uh, given uh, recent comments by Trump? 
No, our priorities with NATO remain the same. We uh, we were one of the founders uh, as with, with NATO. We we uh, our contributions in terms of our troops, uh, our output to NATO has always been been strong. We've demonstrated that we will always be a strong partner uh, in, in NATO, and, and we will also uh, be a strong partner uh, as we have in many different fronts uh, within uh, within the U.S. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I mean, the President uh, Trump in his speech talked about uh, uh, the gangs, the violence, the drugs. Um, we uh, have a unique relationship there as well. As a former police officer, we, work, we collaborate on a daily basis with police forces um, uh, on uh, investigations and making sure we uh, prevent drugs from coming into our two countries. Uh, in the military, we uh, participate in Operation Karib, which is sending our ships to help patrol and uh, um, uh, and interdict uh, drugs that are coming from, um, um, you know, through uh, the coast of Mexico and also in, in, in the Caribbean as well. So we have a very strong relationship on many different fronts, and uh, we're always open to looking at uh, improving that. And as our new defense policy uh, is, is announced, um, this will also demonstrate how we're looking at collaborating way into the future as well, making sure that we look at the new capabilities, making sure that we link some of our innovation investments that we are doing and look at the new advancement uh, in our defense and especially uh, cybersecurity. And and finally, uh, last question for you. How was the party down there at the embassy? Oh, I, this is my first time here, and now I know why this is the uh, the best ticket in town for uh, for any inauguration. Uh, it, it's uh, it's packed. We have a lot of Canadian business um, uh, folks here, U.S. business folks, uh, including um, at different levels of representations from the U.S. government as well, including including ours. Um, it is a great party. In fact, there's a uh, uh, noticed a very long lineup for the Canadian beaver, uh, beaver tail. <laughs> it's a delicious treat indeed. Exactly. So that's, a, so that's how well we, our relationship is. <laughs> <laughs> Diplomacy through food. Uh, very, that's right. yeah. very good. Thank you very much, uh, Defense Minister Harjeet Sajjan, for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was our Defense Minister calling from the Canadian Embassy in Washington following the inauguration of President Donald Trump. Still to come on the show, experts weigh in on the Canada-U.S. relationship. We speak with McLean's writer Scott Gilmore, who was in the crowd for the inauguration. And then we hear from conservative leadership candidate and celebrity investor Kevin O'Leary about how he is not Canada's Donald Trump. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we head stateside and chat with McLean's writer Scott Gilmore about the crowd that showed up for the Donald Trump inauguration. And we hear from the newest candidate in the conservative leadership race, Kevin O'Leary, who speaks to us about jobs, Justin Trudeau, and of course, Donald Trump. But first... With a new president in the White House, there are many ways Canada can be impacted, but it's clear trade and defense are two subjects that are of particular concern. So we spoke with a few experts to get their take on Canada-U.S. relations with Trump at the helm. In his speech, the president said some of his goals will be buy American and hire American policies. Former Canadian diplomat Colin Robertson who now works with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, tells me Canada should worry about this position. Very much so. It's always a danger when America moves into a protectionist phase. 
even if Canada is not the direct target, we become collateral damage. We've seen that time and again under Obama, under George W. Bush, under Bill Clinton, which is why, again, we have to be down there. This is a permanent campaign. We have to be making the case for Canada every day, not just in Washington, but in every American state and in every uh, constituency. My own view is that we probably need a 50-state strategy and probably should move to what the Mexicans have done, is have a consul in every state, because 77% of what Canada exports goes to the United States. You can't change geography. The United States is always going to be, it's the biggest market in the world, it's always going to be Canada's first market. We have to take that very seriously. Keeping with the trade file, Trump has said he wants to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement, and if he doesn't get his way, he's going to rip up the whole thing. Well, that's not good news, especially to Michael Wilson, a former minister in the Mulroney government who helped negotiate NAFTA and later served as Canada's ambassador to the U.S. Well, it is a concern. There's no question, because once you open up uh, a trade deal, you never know when it's, uh, where it's going to take us. Uh, uh, they're looking at it from their perspective, and I'm not sure that they've taken into account some of the changes that we might want. So what is the quid pro quo that uh, will evolve as the negotiations go through? But as I said earlier, their main reason for targeting NAFTA is the concern that they have with the um, uh, amount of new investment that has gone into Mexico and the degree of, uh, uh, of, of exports that are coming from, the, um, from Mexico into the United States. Uh, so the problem is not a primary problem. It's more the sideswipe, the, uh, uh, the broader uh, implications that the, uh, the issues that they take up with Mexico and uh, how that might affect us in Canada. But there are some who think the fears around the economic impact that Trump may have on our country aren't founded. Jerry Dias, the head of Canada's largest union, Unifor, doesn't think the threats to scrap the trade deal are a bad thing at all. Well, frankly, it can't get any worse. Uh, since NAFTA was implemented in 94, um, our trade here in Canada went from a $12 billion trade surplus in manufacturing to a $120 billion deficit. So I'm not one of these people that said, geez, we better not tinker with it because it can get worse because it can't. Uh, this, he is spending a lot of time talking about Mexico, talking about um, the nations which really have been the benefactors of trade. The trade situation with Canada and the United States is much different than the situation with Mexico and the United States in auto, and I'll use that as an example. Um, we build more cars in Canada than we sell, but the cars that we build in Canada are made up of predominantly United States-produced parts. So when you take a look at auto, it's probably about as good as a trade deal as you're going to get for equality. Much different than Mexico. I mean, Mexico probably ships about 3 million vehicles a year uh, to the United States, and the United States ships about 225,000 back. So they are really ta talking about the job killers in the United States, and that will exclude us. But Trump has proven time and time again to be a very unpredictable politician, and that's definitely the case when it comes to defense. Just days ago, he called NATO obsolete, which raised many eyebrows for military experts around the world. Michel Drapeau, a lawyer and retired colonel from the Canadian Armed Forces, tells me it's hard to say what Trump's impact will be on Canadian defense policy. Uh, the, the, the short answer is nobody knows uh, because uh, 
president-elect Trump is is unpredictable. I mean, uh, and and we don't know he's made a whole lot of pronouncement throughout the campaign, uh, things such as uh, he doesn't believe that NATO, in fact, is is an organization that is effective. So too early to tell. Uh, We're into an area that I've never seen before of uncertainty. Uh, What we know for sure, it will have a massive impact and we will have to adjust to it as a as a minor partner in many respects, both in size, in financial commitment, in uh, in reach, in strategic objective, and so on, uh, we will have to pay attention to where the, uh, where, uh, where the U.S. is going. So the general theme is expect the unexpected with Trump. Part of that has to do with his political communication strategy, which seems to be in a complete shambles with constant contradictions, lack of discipline, and distractions from the main messages. McLean's writer Shannon Proudfoot spoke with Scott Reed, the former director of communications for Prime Minister Paul Martin, who says Trump's problem is constantly undermining his comm staff. Trump is about Trump is about Trump. Trump is not about the Trump operation. He's not about a handful of counselors. He's not about other senior people around him. And that's been demonstrated over and over again. So he will contradict, upbraid, humiliate, and we've seen that throughout the campaign. And that's true of all staff, but it's particularly awkward for spokespeople because other staff have the you know, the luxury of sort of commenting, not commenting, being more or less visible when you're the spokesperson. That's, that's a job that's different than anything we have in Canada. Someone who goes up there every day, wants a gaggle in the morning, then holds a newser, and, um, stands at a podium, answers questions, and speaks for the president and for the government and for the West Wing. Shannon has written about Trump's communication strategy, or lack thereof, for mcleans.ca. Head to the website to read more. Still to come, McLean's writer Scott Gilmore, who attended the inauguration, joins us to chat about the crowd that came out to see Donald Trump become president. And later, we hear from Kevin O'Leary about why he wants to be the next leader of the federal conservatives. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, Mr. Wonderful himself, Kevin O'Leary, is here to talk about his conservative leadership race, jobs, Justin Trudeau, and why he's not Donald Trump. But first... Inauguration Day in Washington is a spectacle unlike any other, and Americans celebrate the peaceful transfer of power in very high style. But Donald Trump's inauguration was perhaps a little different, like almost everything else about the new president. For an on-the-ground sense of what it felt like, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes spoke with McLean's columnist Scott Gilmore, who was in the U.S. Capitol. Tell me just a little bit about where you were for the inauguration that the rest of us were watching on TV up here. You know, the inauguration of American president is one of the biggest ceremonies in the world, period, uh, let alone political events. And it takes a great deal of resources, of security, to make it happen. And so the city is basically shut down for 48 hours around the event. And so for me, the day began with just trying to simply get to the mall, the National Mall where the White House sits and, and the Capitol Hill where uh, President now President Trump took his oath of office. And um, once I got there, I walked the length of the National Mall and the first thing that I noticed... That that's a long walk, Scott. Sorry to interrupt. For people that have been there, you're not talking about walking like a city block there. It's, that's a good hike, eh? It's a, 
a good hike, and in past uh, inaugurations, it's been filled with people, hundreds of thousands of people. This year it wasn't. It was mostly empty. And, in fact, when I stood at the um, Washington Memorial, Washington Monument, in the center of it, um, the crowds around me were sparse, maybe 10,000 people. And I, I know there was more closer to the swearing-in, but uh, dramatically fewer than in past years. Interesting. And, and what was the mood of the crowd like where you were? Well, obviously, it was a pro-Trump crowd. Uh, the District of Columbia itself, only 4% of voters actually supported Trump this year. So a lot of the crowd were from out of town. And Did they you were say 4%? White. Sorry to interrupt. Did you say 4%? That's, yes, that's right. That's I actually went back low. to double-check that this morning, uh, but it was only 4% of okay. the District of Columbia voters, which isn't surprising. Um, there are a lot of bureaucrats there um, who, you know, Trump attacked throughout his campaign. Mm. It's a very African-American city, mm. um, and and Trump, um, you know, that was not a, uh, a demographic that he paid much attention Still to. Still, 4 is so, But anyway, go ahead. It is saying. low. So who was there? So it, uh, it was very white. It was. It seemed uh, to be, like I said, a lot of Americans from out of town, mm. and they were Trump supporters, but they weren't. They weren't necessarily fanatical about it. You know, the, on, I was watching some of the uh, coverage on TV, and it makes the applause sound much louder and much more enthusiastic than it was where I was standing. So people were kind of supporters, but not rabid supporters, where you were. Yeah, mostly curious. I suspect they they uh, they wanted to to see the man they put in into office, and uh, they may have been slightly disappointed because the speech that he gave them in his inaugural address was one that I'm pretty sure they'd all heard before. That's interesting. Now, uh, you know, you watched the campaign closely and wrote a lot about it. To me, the big surprise of the speech was not the surprise; it was this familiarity of the tone and even some of the actual language. Yeah, Trump was the last. Well, I mean, traditionally, this, the inaugural address of a new president is one that is intended to um, unite the country, to set forth a, a, an agenda, to inspire. Mm. It's where we have uh, people like President Kennedy saying, "Ask not what to, your country could do for you, but what you can do for your country." That sort of tone. Mm. What Trump delivered was his stump speech, right. uh, almost word for word in some cases, and you know, very partisan, very very critical of Obama, who awkwardly was sitting right next to him as he as he gave it, yeah. and. Um, the, the, the applause lines were things like his promise to eliminate radical Islam from the face of the earth, mm. uh, his his plans to bring factories back to America, things like that. The same applause lines that he got when he was running for the office. His declaration, if I could add, his declaration that the problems of uh, gangs, drugs, and crime were, were over starting that day, which is an amazing assertion. <laughs> well, like he just declared it was done. Like I don't know what to think of someone saying that. Well, I, he may be a genius because uh, in the campaign when he was declaring that, for example, crime in the United States was at a 45-year high, yeah. it was actually at a 45-year low. Right. And so when he says today, well, the crime is over, well, actually, he's, he's right. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Now that he's in office, he can take credit for all of those economic and social um, uh, progress that he denied had actually happened. Scott, I'm, a, I'm at risk, and maybe you are too, of, of getting a bit too jocular. I, I tend to laugh sometimes when I hear Trump, and it's 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 probably not very very smart because it stops me from hearing what people who like him are hearing. If you try to get through that thing that you've described, what it's seeming like more like a conventional stump speech and not like a a sort of a, a sort of aspirational inauguration day speech, what do you think was was getting through there? If we're trying to think about what it is that got Trump elected, what do you think the themes were they hit today that are going to most resonate with people who are optimistic? 
an interesting question. I think that for the most part, the themes that have resonated with, with the American voter who chose to support Trump were themes of fear. Hmm. Uh, fear about their jobs, about the economy, about um, crime. And so, you know, him today pivoting and saying that, you know, crime has now come to an end or, or gang, gang warfare has now come to an end. Yeah. I think we may see more of that. I think, you know, we've already seen him take credit for uh, jobs being created in various factories, jobs that, of course, have been announced months and months before. Right. And so, you know, objectively, America has never been stronger. Its its economy has never been healthier. It's never been larger. Obviously, there are problems, but you know there, the poverty is down. Um, the all the social indicators are up, hmm. and uh, Trump is inheriting the United States in you know robust health. And I think over the next four years, he's going to be very very good at taking credit for that. And that. Uh, if he does it properly, if he does it well, may lead to a re-election. Scott, what, what about the uh, the sense that some people have have expressed despairingly, people who are who, who are opposed to Trump, that he's going to do things? I've seen people declare on on social media and elsewhere that now begins uh, him trying to do things that may be uh, unchangeable. That he'll that he'll do things that can't be reversed. He'll do damage to American institutions or American lives that can't be reversed. You, you guys see, said something in a column you've written for us that suggests that things can be reversed. That this kind of movement isn't isn't uh, permanent. What, how, explain what you're getting at there historically. Well, let's before we speak historically about it, let's talk about eight years ago. Sure. Eight years ago, we we heard the exact same thing hmm. from a different set of the population that Obama was going to steal everybody's guns, that he was going to turn the America uh, America into a, an Islamic country, that he was going to take away everybody's rights. Socialism was um, coming. That's right, and that he was, you know, secretly uh, Donald Trump himself, you know, saying that he was secretly a, a Kenyan uh, Muslim, and none of that ended up being true. And much of what Obama accomplished was welcomed by that sector of the population. And those things that he did, that they didn't uh, like, like for example, Obamacare, mm. are all reversible for mm. better or for worse. Mm. And so I think we can say the same thing about Trump going forward. You're right. There are a lot of people who are extremely concerned about his ties to the Kremlin, about his relationship with big business like the uh, the Goldman Sachs executives that he's filled his cabinet with, and about what he's going to do um, to the, the, the Constitution and the legal system. I think we will see, I hope, I'm optimistic, that it will be the same thing four or eight years from now, that um, it was never as dramatic as we feared, mm. and those things that Americans were unhappy with, they could fix. Mm. That is interesting. I, I mean, on the one hand, I, it's funny, I think most people have watched us are torn. On the one hand, you want to take things with a sense of urgency and you know, take an earnest believe that uh, democracy and government matters. On the other hand, you don't want to seem alarmist or, or naive about how much can happen in a short period with a with a single administration, you know, uh, it, and, and striking the right balance there, you know, and how we view it uh, is, is, I think, is going to be tricky. John, paradoxically, I would say both of those things are true. Mm. You know, um, things will be all right, but things will be all right because we fear that they won't be, because we become anxious and because we become engaged. And so tomorrow, for example, I'm going right back to the the National Mall for what looks like may be a massive protest march, larger than the inauguration itself, Mm. of people who share that sense of urgency that you just described and who are 
you know, perhaps marching for the first time in, in a generation because they feel that this is the time now that America, that the progressive side of America, needs to stand up and fight for itself. That's so interesting. Can I ask just, just one last thing before I let you go? You, you're not a, uh, a guy who's unfamiliar with the states. You spent a fair amount of time there and worked, I know, at different points. Do, do, you, do you feel that somehow, I mean, I, I guess what I'm wondering is to what degree America's, I don't want to say brand because that sounds so crass, but America's image, uh, what America represents in the world, do you think it ends up getting tarnished by Trump or is there going to be a, is there a sense that people will look past him to some other, to other things that America's, you know, as a Canadian, or I'm thinking about uh, people in, in Europe who were perplexed by Trump, do, do you think this somehow might un, you know, unhook our sense of who the president is from what the country is? Right. Well, there is no question right now that uh, America, whether it's America's brand or its reputation, um, has has changed in the last few months. Yeah. Um, most notably amongst its allies, um, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Canada, as you said. You know, at the highest levels, there are real concerns amongst, uh, you know, leaders and officials about what Trump's ties are to Putin and whether or not America is still a reliable ally, one with whom you can share intelligence or one with whom you can uh, maintain the NATO alliance. Mm. More broadly, with, with, the, with the public, with the world, you know, you're right, I have spent a lot of time in America, and it's because it's a great place. It produces some of the world's greatest literature. It produces the world's best movies. Pretty good software. It, it, pretty good software and music ideas, yeah. you know, pro- progressive ideals that, uh, that like, uh, rights for women that, that we see spreading all around the world. A lot of that starts in America, and if it doesn't start in America, America ends up giving it a big push. And so I'm, I'm optimistic. I think that, that um, Americans will, will remain popular with the world. Hmm. The presidency, President Trump, America as a, as a government, it's possibly less likely, but I'm... Um, I have to stay optimistic. Okay. Thanks, Scott. Good to have you here. That was McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes speaking with columnist Scott Gilmore, who was in Washington. You can read Scott's evocative column on the inauguration called America Will Endure online at mcleans.ca. Coming up after the break, investor, reality TV star, and now conservative leadership candidate Kevin O'Leary. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Donald Trump wasn't the only reality TV businessman to make leadership news this week. North of the border, Kevin O'Leary ended months of speculation and finally officially entered the federal conservative leadership race. Shortly after making the announcement in a video on his social media accounts, O'Leary told City News, despite launching his leadership the same week as Donald Trump's inauguration, Canadians should not be drawing any comparisons. I'm actually born from Lebanese and Irish immigrants. If there were walls in Canada, I wouldn't exist. It's that simple. This is a country built on people that had hope, regardless of race or religion, and wanted to find a place to grow their business and their families. That's where I came from. So no, I'm not Donald Trump. Later that day, I spoke with Mr. O'Leary on the phone about why he's running. Why are you taking the leap into the shark tank, if you will, of federal politics? You know, I'm a very lucky Canadian, and when I was young, and the promise of a blue sky and the upside of Canada, 
it was an incredible place. I've watched what's happened, particularly since Trudeau, you know, basically came in with excitement. I was excited like everybody else to see a new mandate. And then I realized, basically, he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, I'm watching this country grind to a halt economically, and Canada doesn't work at 0.7% GDP growth. It needs to be at three. That's how we provide for education and health care and our military spending. These are all the things that we enjoy when our economy is growing. And a remarkable twist of events, and I would have thought that he would have used the election of Trump as an excuse to reverse his policies. He's swimming in the wrong direction. While our biggest trading partner is reducing taxes, while they're lifting regulations while they're eliminating carbon taxes. He's going exactly the wrong direction, making this country incredibly uncompetitive. And then this bombshell in the last two weeks where basically we now understand as Canadians that he's not going to balance a budget or even care to do so for 38 years, resulting in my kids inheriting a $1.5 trillion debt. Not a chance in hell I'm going to let him do that. Are you kidding? That's why I'm doing this. Canadians are concerned. That's insane. Clearly, he doesn't understand what he was elected to do. He's misinterpreted his mandate completely. So I have to shine the light of transparency on him. I'm going to do so over the next two years. I'm going to make sure everybody understands the risks in his policies. And come 2019, when I perform the exorcism, because it won't be an election, I have to cast aside the malaise and the debt of what he's doing and turn this country around. It's a mess. So it's clear your top priority is the economy and creating jobs. How will you create jobs? So the first thing we have to do is look at what's going to happen south of the border in the next 100 days, because we shouldn't have made any policies till we understand what it is to be competitive. And under, For example, we, we don't want the lowest tax rate. We want competitive tax rates. So we have to wait and see what Trump does. Is he going to lower it to 15 or to 20? We need to know that. What's his policy on carbon? We need to match that. What's he doing on regulation in oil and gas and pipelines and automotive manufacturing? We have to deal with that. We shouldn't have made all of these moves before we knew what our competitors were doing. And that's the first thing I'm going to do is make sure that we get to a place. I'll I'll reverse everything Trudeau has done, that's for sure, because it's completely wrong. And then I'll find out what it takes to open Canada up for business again. Once I stabilize the economy... I will go around the world where I do business every day anyways, to London, to Hong Kong, to New York, to Shanghai. And I'll say to these people, Canada is open for business again. You mentioned that uh, Trump uh, is is a big factor of this Canada-U.S. relation, and uh, especially for our economy. Uh, but how are you going to handle Trump differently than what Trudeau would do? Trump's a businessman, just like I am. He negotiates deals just like I do. You need to be strong. You need to understand what your assets and what your weaknesses are. We're a very large trading partner to 38 states. We have to use that leverage to get better deals on pipelines, on automotive, on tariffs. You know, I look at Trump versus Trudeau. It's Godzilla versus Bambi. He's going to get crushed. He's the wrong guy to negotiate with Trump. There's no question about it. Canadians know that now, too. We didn't anticipate this would happen, but if you're a good leader, you pivot. The definition of leadership is you find great people and you ask them to do extraordinary things for you. That's what I've done my whole life. We have to completely reinvigorate the caucus. This is the people that do the business of Canada. I look at what Trudeau did. He basically said, look, I really care about gender and, 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 I, and I want to make sure that we have complete diversity in our caucus, but he never asked the other question that matters. Can they do the job? 
what are their qualifications? I just see a, a whole palette of mediocrity there. He moves them around like chess pieces, and it's a disaster. Up up until now, you've you've spent about half your years in uh, in the U.S. Uh, this is a problem for Michael Ignatieff when he was liberal leader, who was attacked by the conservatives as just visiting. How are you different? Don't you risk being seen the same way as just visiting for political purposes? Not at all. It's not the U.S. I spend 180 days of the year traveling to London, to Geneva, to Zurich, to Hong Kong, to Cambodia, to Thailand, to New York to San Francisco. I'm an international investor. The whole point is those relationships are extremely valuable, and we need them in Canada because we have to attract capital. We have to open the country up for business, and I'm going right back on the road to those exact same places. When I show up in New York, we'll have a trillion dollars in the New York Stock Exchange boardroom, and I will announce our new energy policy will be open for business. I will reverse everything we did federally to hold back on the promise of investors because we need billions of dollars to develop our resources and make our country completely energy self-sufficient. I, this, is, this is a huge advantage I have over career politicians. I have no favors to return to politicians. I don't owe anybody anything. I've never been in Ottawa, and that's not going to hold me back from doing what's right. I'm coming in without any favors owed. The only people I work for are you and me and the Canadian taxpayer. That's what matters. You said in an earlier interview that the comments you made as a television commentator and a personality uh, don't matter anymore now that you're in the race. But how are people supposed to trust you at your word uh, when now you're saying what you said before doesn't matter anymore? Canadians aren't stupid. They understand television. I was a very successful commentator with Amanda Lang for years and a columnist with her. We made great television together. We explored all kinds of ideas. I didn't agree with anything she said. But that is not policy. It doesn't matter what we did for entertainment. What I'm talking about now is the future. I'm a businessman. You either think that's good for the country or not. I understand numbers. You either believe that that's useful or not. I read balance sheets and income statements and I know when we're in peril. You either value that or you don't. If you think this country is being well run, vote for Justin Trudeau. If you're worried about the future and being $1.5 trillion in debt, I'll fix it. It's that simple. Do you worry that you're at a disadvantage because you're jumping into this race so late? No. I never found any value in those debates, regardless of what language they were in. It's not even fair to the candidates to give them 20-second sound bites. I reach over a million Canadians a day. The Facebook Live I did just two hours ago is already past a million. I'm communicating with Canadians directly and not in 20-second sound bites. The world has changed. The point is I don't have a name recognition problem. I don't have a money problem. The problem right now is we've got to allow these candidates, all of them, I do not have a monopoly on great ideas. No one does. I'll take the best of theirs and take them to Ottawa. The only decision the membership has to make is on May 27th, who is the right candidate to defeat Trudeau with a majority mandate? That's all that matters now. You've been criticized about your uh, lack of fluency in French. You've said you've been taking lessons to try and uh, beef up your uh, your French. How is that coming along? It exists en fait trois la langue officielle au Canada. L'anglais, le français, et la langue des en plus. 
En plus, en plus, en plus, c'est très important. That's what I'm working on. I used to speak French when I was seven. I'm immersing myself in it every morning. I'll get better. But I'll tell you this. There's three languages in Canada. English, French, and the language of jobs. I'm pretty sure my proficiency in French is going to get better before I debate Trudeau, but I guarantee you he will remain illiterate in the language of jobs. That was Kevin O'Leary, federal conservative leadership candidate. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.